We always say here in the church, we are a small church with a big heart. Welcome to Point of Grace Church. My name is Pastor Norbert. If it's your first time here, I'd like to welcome you. Those of us who are uh, watching and worshiping with us online, I'd like to welcome you as well. How are you guys this week? Are you good? So many things that happened this week. Now we're finally in the last chapter of the book of Joshua. We are doing a series, um, and we are on the last chapter. We are very excited. We started last January for the whole book of Joshua, and it's just 24 chapters. This is the last chapter of the book of Joshua, and that means next week we will be starting a new series on the book of Revelation. And so if you've been thinking about what's the talk about the end times, the 666, that's a funny number, the um, Antichrist, the talk about dragons and beasts, that would be next week, all right? Uh, I'm excited as well because I've been preparing for, for this. But for now, it's the last chapter of the book of Joshua. I always see this in the movies. Um, a guy dies, his family goes to the funeral, buries him, and then goes back to the house, meets with the lawyer of the family. The lawyer opens a briefcase, takes out some papers, and starts reading the last will and testament. You see that in movies, right? And so when he talks about the last will and testament, it becomes personal. Joshua chapter 24 is like the last will and testament of Joshua. At this point, Joshua is very old, and he would give his last sermon, his last challenge to the people of Israel. And you might be thinking, why is this important to me? What's, what's the significance of this one? Now, according to the Gallup, there's about 75% to 80% of those who grew up in the church upon reaching adulthood will leave the church. 80%. Further research says that an increasing number of millennials and Gen Zs have no religious affiliations, and this is one of the leading causes of the decline of the church. The last 30 years of the church, there's a steep decline in church attendance, especially in the last two years with the pandemic. What we're seeing is that if this trend continues, we are seeing a great decline of church, not just here in America, but all over the world. Let me paint you a picture. 40 to 50 years from now, we will not be here, or maybe some of us will be here. We're talking about your children. The question is, Will your children stay in the faith? Will they remain in the church? Second question, maybe more personal, is that what are you doing or what are we doing that guarantees that they stay in the faith? This is what Joshua 24 is trying to address. How do we remain in the faith? Because there's a big possibility that the next generation, the generation that Joshua is addressing, will leave the faith. Let me read you a couple of verses from chapter 24. It says, Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders and the heads and the judges and the officers of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau, 
And then I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess. But Jacob and his children went down to Egypt, and I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it, and afterward I brought you out. This is very interesting to say the least. Now there are some idolized words which starts with I. I took, I gave, I led, I made, and finally I brought you out. This was Joshua trying to give out the history, recalling the history of Israel, reminding the people that they started from small beginnings. This is not just establishing what happened, this is establishing exactly what God did. This is the problem with history. History is not just what happened. History is, according to the mind of the author who's doing the history or history making, is what happened according to what he saw. See, it, it's not just what happened. It is what happened according to him. So for God and to Joshua, it's not just what happened to Israel. It is what God did to Israel that happened. So God would say, I gave, I did, I made, and then finally I brought you out from Egypt. What's interesting here is that God is really pressing on his, what he did for Israel because Israel had to be reminded what God did for them. You know, there are people who started from small beginnings and then when they become rich, they start to forget. Uh, we have a, a famous saying from our national hero. He said, Ang hindi lumingon sa pinanggalingan, my stiff neck. <laughs> na, na, hindi makararating sa paroroonan, right? It has something to do with, you know, understanding where you came from so that you won't forget. That's the idea here. And after all the successes, Joshua fears that the people of Israel might forget. Now, why would they forget? This is, this is what I think is the millennials and the Gen Z's in Joshua's time. Now, why? Because the first generation who came out of Egypt are their parents. All the parents died in the wilderness in 40 years. They'd all died. So the only people who came out from the wilderness and crossed the Jordan River are their children. And Joshua is, is addressing the children. He's talking to the children now. And these are the Gen Z's and the millennials in Joshua's time. And, and he is thinking... This, there will be a time that they might forget why. See, this generation that Josh was talking to are not the people who were slaves in Egypt. They don't have an idea what slaves mean. These are the people who were born in the wilderness in 40 years. So these people were the ones who witnessed manna every day for 40 years. Manna is bread. I mean, their parents did not have to work for 40 years. They just have to wait every day, every morning for 40 years Instant bread, manna for 40 years. These are the people who saw the fire by night and the cloud by day, every day for 40 years. These are the people whom the Bible said that their sandals did not wear out for 40 years. Probably Adidas, I don't know. These are the people who also experienced what the Bible says their clothes did not wear out for 40 years. These are the people who saw lots of miracles. They, never, they have never been slaves all their lives. They, will, they were free men. And so Josh was thinking there will be a time when this generation from a privileged position will soon forget because they did not experience hardships. So he pressed on. He said in verse 13, I gave you a land on which you had not labored and cities that you have not built, and you dwell in them. 
you eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. I mean, this, this is exactly, Joshua's painting the picture. You have been handed out something from God. You did not experience hardships, and therefore, there's a big possibility that you will soon forget. Well, in the house, when we have a meal, especially when the food is yummy, I would always tell my son that when I was growing up, I did not experience those things. Now, I, I'm not a bit embarrassed that I came from humble beginnings. So I'd always tell him whenever we, we eat something nice, because to him, oh, by the way, my son, Jemak, is 10 years old. He, he was born here. To him, uh, eating steak, eating a big slab of ribeye steak is normal. So I would tell him, you know what, when I was growing up, I did not experience having this. The only time I started eating these things is when I started working. And he could not understand that. Uh, last week, we went to Ikea. This is our idea of family day. So we went there. We were going around, and there's this portion where there are tables and desks for computers. And because uh, my son likes gaming, so immediately he spot a desk complete with two monitors, a very nice armchair, you know, console. And he flipped the tag and he saw the, the price. It's almost 1200 He sat there immediately. After a couple of seconds, he looked at me. Without batting an eyelid and with full confidence, he said, Papa, I'd like this for Christmas. <laughs> I mean, how cool is that? So I thought, in my mind, I, I can say yes, and I can save up up to December, and I, I'd let him enjoy. But on second thoughts, I was thinking I could also say no, and I could make him save his own money so that he could purchase his own thing so that he could understand the value of money. And as predictable as I am, I said no. Now I'm thinking, what could be going through the mind of Joshua when he was talking to the people, to the millennials and Gen Zs of his time? He was probably thinking the same. Because these people have been handed out lands and orchards and vineyards. So Joshua had to make sure that they understand the value of what they got. Verse 14. Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. If it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers serve in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Now I understand some of you, this is your favorite verse. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. But you have got to understand this in context. The context is that at this point in time, they still have idols. Now, I can't get this through my mind because when I was reading the Bible, you start with Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. I mean, of all the good things God did, at this point, they still have idols. That means the moment they came out of Egypt, they have idols. They crossed the Red Sea, they still have idols. For 40 years, they have idols. They crossed the Jordan River, they still have idols. And at this point, Joshua's about to die, they still have idols. Does it make sense? Of all the things that God showed them, of all the things that God gave them, they're still not fully devoted to God. Now, there's a story about Jacob. You know Jacob, right? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob because he fought with his brother Esau, he had to flee and go to his uncle Laban. Laban lived far away. 
So for 14 years, he became a servant of Laban. He was, uh, you know, doing the, he was employed. Uh, he also stayed there for a long time because he wanted to marry uh, Rachel. Rachel is beautiful according to the Bible. And so finally, after 14 years, he got married to Rachel and Leah. There was a bonus. And then he became rich. And after some time, he said, you know, I'm rich. I'm going to go back to my home country, and I will leave this place because God promised me something nice. But because he knew that his uncle would not approve, he sneaked out in the middle of the night together with his, own, his family, with his servants, and all of his possessions, goats, sheep, cattle, etc. Now, Laban found out in the morning and brought all his army to catch up with Jacob. So they caught up with Jacob, and Jacob now is in trouble. He wanted to kill Jacob now. And, but he has no, no reason because Jacob has every, every right to go. And so what he said is that somebody stole my idols. And from this house, from your house, I think someone stole my idols. He was talking about family idols, the household gods. And so he went through every tent of Joshua's family. So all the sons has his own tents and his servants. But he cannot find the family idols, the household gods. And the Bible said that it was Rachel who stole the family idols. <laughs> Rachel, of all people, stole the family idols. At that time, Rachel was sitting on a camel on top of the saddle. The saddle contains the idols. And when Laban approached her, she said, Father, I'm sorry I cannot get down to properly uh, greet you because I'm having a menstrual period. And just like that, they got away with it. What that means is that even after that, they still have idols. Now, uh, you might be thinking, Jacob is the one that God chose to become his people, to start his nation. And yet, the family of Jacob worship idols. Now, that's very interesting for me when I was trying to understand this. Why would Rachel steal the idols? Because they are family heirlooms. Idols are figures, you know, they vary in size from small to medium to large. Some life-size figures, and they are usually made of gold and precious stones. That's why they're valuable. They are passed down from one generation to the other. What that means is that for Rachel, this was her heirloom. She wanted this, but she did not ask permission from her father. The next thing you read, Genesis chapter 35, God was talking to Jacob, and Jacob made a very big decision. Genesis 35, this is what it says. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you have fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you. Sounds familiar. And this is what Joshua actually said. So Jacob said, Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. And then let us arise and go up to Bethel that I may make there an altar to God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had. <laughs> it's not just one idol. All the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Now, practically they have rings with in their ears or sometimes in their nose that works like an amulet or sometimes like a talisman to ward off the evil and to attract the, you know, the good thing. The suerte, just like what we call in the Philippines. Chinese love suerte. You know? So 
Rachel and the kids have suerte. They have earrings. But they also have idols, and they have to give, give it up. Now, what's interesting is what Jacob did. It says, Jacob hid them under a terebinth tree that was near Shechem. Hmm, sounds familiar. Now, what's interesting is not what decision he made. What's interesting more is where he made the decision. Shechem. The verse 4 says he hid the idols under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. Now, you go back to Joshua 24. Joshua gathered the people where? In Shechem. It's like Joshua is setting up the people of Israel and recreating the scene where they have to give up their idols for good. So Joshua is very smart at this point. He's recreating the event. He knew that the people of Israel will have to make up their minds just like Jacob did. You know, to which the people already said, and immediately they said, yes, we will put away our idols. If it was me, I would have stopped there. But Joshua did not. He said in verse 19, But Joshua said to the people, You are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God, and he will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. Now, this is the part where it took me a while to understand it before the truth sinks in. Because it says you cannot serve God because God is, and then he mentioned three things. God is holy, God is jealous, and he will not forgive. Why would Joshua do that? Why would Joshua say that? Why is it that even if I want to serve God, Joshua is saying you cannot serve God? Why is that? What Joshua is trying to say is that you people can begin to serve God. You can try to serve God. You You can try, but you really cannot. Unless you are fully devoted to God. Because worshiping God means full devotion, full allegiance, and exclusion. God must be worshipped exclusively. You cannot worship God and worship other gods at the same time. You cannot have God, Yahweh, and other gods in your house at the same time. If you want to worship God, you have to worship God alone. And he's saying three things. Because God is holy, God is jealous, and he will not just... Forgive your transgressions. And then he clarified what he meant in verse 20. He said, if you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, this is the scary part, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. I mean, this for me is scary. I mean, you don't really read the Bible and look at God as someone who takes vengeance on you or hates you or something that does harm to you. But this is exactly what Joshua is saying. What Joshua is saying is that if Israel decides to accumulate gods or adopt other gods or abandon their faith, Yahweh, in the most violent language, it says he will turn you and do you harm and consume you. Why is that? The Bible actually portrays God as a consuming fire. God is a consuming fire. Remember what happened to Nadab and Abihu? The two priests, they were consumed by fire because they were drunk when they entered the tabernacle. God is a consuming fire. If they abandon their faith, God will consume them. What Joshua is saying is that you have to slow down because this decision is a serious one. In the Philippines, we have this saying, another saying in Tagalog, Ang pag-aasawa ay hindi katulad ng mainit na kanin na kapag sinubo at napaso ay pwedeng iluwa. I'm not sure if you understand that. 
because we're not all Tagalog speakers here. <laughs> Have you ever heard of the phrase, rice is life? I've heard it. Rice is, I was kind of funny. Uh, I think Joko is the one from Joko I heard. Rice is life. What, <laughs> what this means is that marriage is like, eat, is like eating newly cooked rice. It's hot. It's very hot. And some people would rush into marriage without thinking about it thoroughly. And the moment they eat the rice, they instantly regret because it's too hot. You cannot do that. What Joshua is saying is that if you people, if you new generation of Israel will decide to serve God and put away your idols, you have to slow down and think about this very carefully. You have to follow through. You cannot just quit in the middle and say, I can do it. It's not something doable. I'm quitting now. If you decide now, you will have to decide for life. The demand is too serious. I was thinking about this, I was thinking about this the whole week. I keep thinking, why would Israel keep failing by keeping idols in spite of the fact that God showed them tremendous redemption all the way from Egypt to the promised land? Why would they keep on going back and accumulating other gods? Why is it at this point they still have idols? And then I started to read the text again. And then as if the text leaps from the Bible and shouts, because God is a holy God. What does it mean? What does it mean for God to be a holy God? Well, some rabbis would say that holiness means God is unique. God is unique from all the gods. He is unique. In fact, this is what it says in Exodus chapter 20 from the Ten Commandments. I brought you out of Egypt. There is no other God before me. I'm a holy God because God is holy. He's unique among all the gods. There's no one like him. He's unique. Now, what that means is that when he demands worship, he demands it in exclus exclusion. He wants to be worshipped alone. My suspicion why, it's, why Israel keep on failing, why Israel keep on accumulating other gods, it's because it's easier to have other gods than worshiping Yahweh. It's easier to worship other gods than to worship Yahweh. Why? Because, you know, figures, idols, figurines, small, you can keep them. You can put them in your house. You can put an altar and put all the, you know, as much as you want, all the idols. That means the idols, they can see, they can taste, they can smell every day 24-7. If they need to pray, they can go to the altar, they can see, they can taste, they can smell, they can pray to eat every day. They can offer food, they can burn incense every day. There's an emotional and physiological attachment. In contrast to Yahweh, Yahweh can only be worshipped in one location. That means if you live in Orlando, you will have to travel south. That's four hours to go to Fort Lauderdale just to offer a sacrifice. And you cannot do that every day. So there's an emotional and physiological disconnection from the people. It's hard. It's hard to worship Yahweh exclusively. Now, not only that, not only that, because Yahweh demands something more. Yahweh demands that he be treated with utter respect and worship. He also demands that they keep the Sabbath day. That means if I devote myself to worshiping Yahweh, I cannot have a day off. If I, I can, Yahweh demands a day off, Sabbath day. 
But if I want to, to work, that means I cannot. Because Yahweh demands that I stop working on Sabbath day. Yahweh also demands that I treat my neighbor as I treat myself. I cannot covet. That means if I start to worshiping Yahweh and strictly following the law of Moses, that means I cannot eat whatever I want. You mean you, you will have to eat only kosher food. You cannot eat whatever you want. You cannot have sex to whoever you want. You aren't free to do many things. You cannot cheat your neighbor and not feel guilty about it. So worshiping Yahweh, devoting to worship God, is difficult for the Israelites. You see the implications here. Yahweh demands absolute obedience. Absolute obedience. Now, I could make a case why it's difficult to worship Yahweh compared to the other gods, but you, you get the point. For the same reason, Jesus raised the same issue of devotion and idolatry. To Jesus, absolute devotion is the only way to serve God. Absolute devotion is the only way to worship God. In his infamous sermon on the mount, he points to the preoccupation of the heart. Where is your heart is where your treasure is. According to Matthew 6, 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What Jesus is saying is that the preoccupation of the heart is where your worship is at. And therefore, whoever is in your heart the most is whoever you worship. This is about what takes most of your time, what really makes you happy, what you think is the meaning and the purpose of your life. Where your heart is, there your treasure will be also. And then down to verse 24, he said, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. That means you cannot serve both God and money at the same time, with the same intensity, with the same devotion. You will have to choose one. It seems like Jesus understood that the greatest temptation, the greatest temptation is to abandon God for money at this point. What's interesting here is that Jesus mentioned money and God in the same sentence in the same context, serving God and serving money. What he's saying is that serving money, if I prioritize money over God, it's idolatry. Are you getting this? And Apostle Paul picked up on this in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. He said, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, of course, very obvious, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Other translation is greed, which is idolatry. I tried to look for other versions, and I even tried to look for the original Greek. And it's always the same thing. If it's either Covetousness or greed is always followed by which is idolatry. In fact, Jesus would say the love of money is the root of all evil. Love of money, more than God, is idolatry. Now, I'm not accusing you of anything, but this is what the passage is saying. What this passage is saying is that you cannot effectively serve God with all the demands of total devotion and exclusivity when your heart is focused somewhere else. Because it takes a lot of concentration and dedication and love to serve God. There is a Japanese word, ikigai, 
Ikigai is, is very interesting. Ikigai is translated as the reason for being or the purpose or the meaning of your life. Ikigai. Say it with me. Ikigai. It's fancy, huh? Ikigai. It's the meaning of your life. It's the reason for being. It's the purpose for your life. This concept of Ikigai is a combination of where your calling, your mission, your vocation, and your profession meets. That's your Ikigai. Let me say that again. It is where your meaning, your vocation, your profession, and your mission in life meets. That's your Ikigai. That's what gets you up in the morning to do, to work, to get up. The purpose of your life, Ikigai. This is what gives you the ultimate happiness. This is, you do what you love, and what you love makes you really happy, Ikigai. You see, there are some Japanese who would devote all their lives to just creating bonsai trees. Why? Ikigai. Makes them very happy. There are Japanese who all their lives would create Japanese swords, samurai. Why? Ikigai. It seems like Jesus is saying the same concept with a very particular story. So he told the story. There was a rich man, successful businessman. He has got money in the bank. He has huge portfolio. He owns yachts, couple of houses, two Lamborghinis, a Porsche, and a Maserati. There's n nothing in the Bible like that. I'm just interpreting. Now one day he heard Jesus is in town, so he came to check out Jesus. And when he got there, he heard Jesus saying to his disciples, let the little children come to me, for them belongs the kingdom of heaven. Got his attention. Now he has everything. He has money. He's got everything. But he wants to secure his future future. You know, not just future 10 years, but future after life future. And so he came to Jesus. He approached Jesus, and he said, Luke chapter 18, he said, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He's very interested in how we can secure his future. And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. This is practically the second part of the Ten Commandments. Except the last, he did, God did, Jesus did a mention. The last portion is, do not covet. All right? So do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And this guy said, all this I have kept from my youth. He's talking about bar mitzvah. So a Jew, a Jew, when he reaches 12 or 13, he goes to the synagogue and he gets some sort of baptism. It, they call it bar mitzvah. He becomes uh, a follower of the law. So he starts following the law at this point. So he's saying, from my youth, he's following the law. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, you're still missing. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Now he said, good teacher, because he was hoping that Jesus would somehow affirm that he is good. He's been following the law. But Jesus said, he, he saw, Jesus saw the intention of his heart. So Jesus said, only God is good. What is this? See, if you read the book of Genesis, and you start reading the creation, every day at the end of the law, he's not good. He's not good as God. 
Only God is good. That's the point of Jesus Christ. And so without embarrassing him, Jesus tells him what to do. How do you inherit eternal life? You have to give up everything and give them to the poor. That means for him, there's no 401k, there's no retirement funds, high probability of persecution and crucifixion, no guarantee of salary, nothing of that sort. The only thing that he gets is treasure in heaven. So in his mind, he's probably thinking, treasure in heaven, treasure now. Treasure in heaven, treasure now. And the Bible said he, he became very sad. Why? Because he was extremely rich. He's thinking, ROI, now or in heaven? And he chooses now. You see, you cannot serve God and serve money at the same time. You have to choose. And this guy chose the latter, money. I have a nagging suspicion why this guy is extremely rich. And I'm not against people who are extremely rich. I know Kuyalito has the most money in the bank here, but that my, that's my suspicion here. But, and Kuya Dani too. That's why they're together there. Now, my nagging suspicion is this guy was extremely rich because of something. You see, in Israel, if you read the Bible, God puts up a system where nobody can become extremely rich. God doesn't want that. Because, but this guy is extremely rich. So you think about Zacchaeus was extremely rich because he was cheating the people, right? He was a tax collector. I'm not saying that all tax collectors that work at IRS are cheating. I'm just saying Zacchaeus cheated. The family of Caiaphas and Annas owns the franchise to the money changing in the temple. That's why they're rich. The story about the rich man and Lazarus, the rich man was rich because he was neglecting to help the poor. See, in the Bible, there's a Sabbath law. That's the fourth commandment. So this guy mentioned about, about the other commandments, stealing, honoring your father, mother, not murdering people, not bearing false witness. Jesus now raises this new law, the Sabbath law. Sabbath law means honor the Sabbath day. You have to rest. But maybe we haven't heard. There's also a Sabbath year. Let me show you. Exodus 23, verse 10. And I would think that this is the reason why this guy is extremely rich. Exodus 23 says, For six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield. But the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat. And what they leave the beasts, and what they leave the beast of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. What this means is that the entire seventh year revenue must be given to the poor. You don't get the revenue for the seventh year. All the seventh year goes to the poor and the needy. I would suspect that this guy was extremely rich because he's not following this law. He was accumulating wealth. Probably maybe, maybe he's not, he's not honoring the Sabbath day. He may be not murdering people, not stealing from people, but he's breaking the law. And therefore, he knew that he's not good. See, I think Jesus here is giving an ikigai to this young ruler. He's saying, I'm giving you a purpose for your life. The purpose is not to go after money. 
let me be very clear here. I'm not after, I'm not against earning money, making money. I am against serving money in place of God. And Jesus here is probably giving this guy a new purpose in life. Give up all your possessions, give them to the poor, come follow me. I'll, I'm giving you a new purpose in life. Following God. The kingdom of God is the new purpose in life. You go back to Joshua 23 and you see the same thing that Joshua wants to tell the people. Your purpose in life, your ikigai, should be the kingdom of God. Not your own riches, not your own kingdom, not your own village, but the kingdom of God. You cannot serve both God and the idols at the same time. I don't know about you. I don't know about your passion in life. But it, it is impossible to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If our hearts are saying, no, I'm not really after that kingdom of God. I want to build my own kingdom. It's impossible to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven and also in my life. You see, it's impossible for you to sit there and listen to the sermon and thinking, it's a waste of time this Sunday, the sermon is too long, I should have been making money. We can only serve God and serve money one at a time. We cannot do both at the same time. We have to prioritize God. And the choice is the treasure here or the treasure there. For the rich young man, he chose his treasure, treasure here. We can always choose our treasure in heaven because we know here in, on the earth, it may be stolen, it may rust, we may lose them, but in heaven, we will not. So to Joshua, his last and final say to the people, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we honor you. We thank you for being faithful to us. If we recount the things that you have done from the beginning, we would, like the Israelites, we will be able to see how you have been faithful to us until now. And there's no other reason for us to be disloyal. And there's no other reason for us to seek after other gods or to serve money. Father, I pray that you will refine our hearts like you are the refiner's fire. You will refine our hearts. You will purify our hearts. Just like the song, you are jiry, you make us content. Whatever you give, we will receive in full gratitude because you are our God and you are enough for us. Father, would you be enough for us? Allow us to serve you with full devotion, full allegiance, and full commitment because we love you. Bless us today in Jesus' name.